Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 14th, 2023, and I'm joined in studio today, as usual, by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And Dr. Matthews, today we're going to talk about a really interesting article that you didn't write, but that you came across Mm -hmm. called The Ten New Rules of American Politics. Right. And this is by a man named Doug Sosnick. He's a Democrat. Uh, He's been around for a while. He was, for instance, he was uh, served as political director for President Bill Clinton during his second term. Uh, He's worked for Chris Dodd. Uh, He's uh, been a strategist for uh, John Kerry. I mean, so he's, he's got impeccable Democratic credentials. But these days... And and also has been at it for a long time. He's been at it for a long time. These days, he's he's sort of working in areas. I assume he's probably consulting some, but he also occasionally writes a piece just sort of on, uh, let's call it metapolitics, an overview of what's happening and how things are changing in politics. And I see this in Politico when they pop up. They don't pop up that often. But one came up here at the end of August, Uh, on the 10 new rules for American politics. And he's just sort of going through some of the changes that he sees. And it's interesting because he's been watching this for a long time, but he says this transition is really making some changes in what, in how things, uh, how things are are done. And he said, he, he says in their election outcomes have been defined recently more by voters energized to vote against candidates then vote for them. And I agree with that. Yeah, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I've actually been saying that for some time myself. It has probably been since 1984. That was the last time Ronald Reagan ran for president. Mm-hmm. That was the last time I really voted for a president. Most of the other times I've been voting, yeah, somewhat for, but, but in large part against the other you, candidates. You, you could either say I'm voting against someone rather than for someone, or almost as commonly you'll hear people say things like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing the least bad choice yes. or the least objectionable of, of, of two poor choices. And uh, Sosnick, it's it sort of the introduction to this piece, actually sort of makes this point that there's been a lot of drama at the forefront of politics for the last several cycles. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sort of behind the scenes, there's these long term changes that are happening. And that's right. what I, that's what I think you and I both find so interesting about this piece of his is that he's describing long-term trends mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, if you follow politics, if you operate in politics or whatever, uh, you really got to understand that the, 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 the way politics was done 20 years ago is not necessarily the way that's going to succeed today. And he points out that some of these trends are being driven by new generations coming of age because the baby boomers and what we call the greatest generation – they're they're moving off the scene now. They are uh, seniors. They're passing away. And so it's the younger generations that are beginning to have the big influence. And so we're going to walk through some of these these 10 points that he mentions and just discuss those. His first one, all politics is now national. And this goes completely against what Tip O'Neill, former Speaker of the House, Democrat when Ronald Reagan was president, used to say that all politics is local. He says now all politics is national, and 
very in in all the races they focus on national issues. National issues sort of drive this rather than the local. If races. you're running for dog catcher. They want to know what your position is on abortion. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And that's an example of what you're talking about. So I find this first point really interesting because you and I, unfortunately, are both old enough to remember when all politics was local, mm-hmm. when Tip O'Neill said that. And what was really noteworthy about in 1994, the contract with America right. and uh, Newt Gingrich and Dick Army, mm-hmm. that they they purposely set out to nationalize the election. Mm-hmm. And and this was a this was a 180 from the normal way that you would run a midterm election. Normally, the idea of a midterm election is: look, you you say you take whatever positions you need to take in order to win in your district, mm-hmm. right? No, nobody's going to dictate to you from the top down what you have to do. And the whole idea of the contract with America, and the whole idea of that, was to nationalize the election, mm-hmm. and and they succeeded. And I have to wonder if 1994 wasn't maybe sort of the start of this trend of all politics being national. But yeah, this this really, I think, just um, you, you just you just when you hear this, you just automatically know that it's the case because we literally don't ask, you know, mayoral candidates, how can we do a better job of picking up the trash? Right. We ask mayoral candidates, what's their position on the border? Mm-hmm. You know, immigration and stuff like that, something that they have absolutely nothing to do with. Now, while we like, we, we think what he says is interesting, that doesn't mean there's not some exceptions or some caveats in here. And, and I'll just mention in Virginia, one of the reasons Glenn Youngkin won as a Republican uh, in Virginia in a state that was turning blue uh, was the fact that it was on a lot of this was focused on parents and school districts, which are local, but even that has become a national issue. Yep, yep. Uh, I, I want to sort of use one. We want to get through ten of these, so we have to move quickly. But I want to sort of do one more illustration of this point that we were making about how, how everything's been nationalized. Uh, you and I are, are based in Texas. IPI is based in Texas. Um, I'm always amused when I see a campaign piece from from someone who's running for like the state legislature Mm -hmm. or the state Senate or something like that, or even maybe somebody's running for a position within the Republican Party, like they're running for Dallas County chairman or something. And one of their top points will be, you know, I'm for strong borders, Mm -hmm. you know, which you know, if you're running for Dallas County chairman of the Republican Party, uh, you don't get you don't have anything to do with immigration policy. Right. It, the, the Texas state legislature technically can't do very much about immig- about immigration policy and strong borders. Now, right. Texas it's, is a border it's state. trying, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think that's just that's one of the most recent glaring examples of this fact that everything is national. Whether you have anything to do with a policy or not, the voters want to know what your position is on these big national issues. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, number two on, on his list, education is the new fault line in American politics. And I find this really interesting because years ago, you tended to think of lower income people and lower education people as Democratic supporters higher income, higher education, more Republican. He says now that has changed. He said education is now the best predictor of how Americans will vote. What he calls the diploma divide has become fundamental to the country's politics since it is increasingly uh, sorting Americans into political parties. And he argues that uh, college-educated voters are now a central part of the Democratic Party. 
whereas Republican voters tend to be more rural and less educated. Yeah, and I think this is I think this is also indisputable. I think this we we know this from polling and from data, but this is one of these things that really bugs me mm-hmm. because I don't like the fact that. Um, uneducated people are more likely to be Republicans and educated people are more likely to be Democrats um, because I want educated people to be Republicans, you know. And there are some. To be conservative. You but, have a master's and I have a PhD. Yeah, exactly. But I said, th- well, actually I have two master's degrees. Oh. So I would have just, <laughs> but I know, I know two master's degrees do not add up to one PhD. But I have to wonder if part of the reason that this has happened is the degree to which Colleges and universities over the past couple of decades have really gone from educating people to indoctrinating people. Yeah, I people. think that's right. If you have graduated from college in the last 10 years, uh, you have been filled up to the brim with gender ideology and socialist economic ideology you know you look look at like AOC in congress for instance right she had mm-hmm. she gra- she graduated with a degree in economics yes and her economics are horrendous. much to the shame of her university yeah no her economics are horrendous yeah so apparently you can get a four year degree in economics and come out as a social justice warrior who doesn't know anything about economics you know back in the in the late 80s and early 90s I actually taught at the college level in philosophy, and I did my best to try because it's philosophy. It can be you can you can change the subject, you can really impose your ideas. But mm-hmm. I really tried to go right down the middle so that people I wasn't imposing ideas upon them. I was giving them what people had said and let them sort of work through the material themselves. But I think that's largely gone these days. Yeah, yeah. I I attribute this second point not to the fact that the more intelligent you are, the more likely you you are to be a Democrat. I attribute the second point to the more indoctrinated you have been, the more likely you are to be a Democrat, Mm -hmm. or at least that's what I tell myself. The interesting thing about this point is that we are in a a very disruptive moment right now about college and university education. More and more people are starting to realize that you don't need a degree to do a whole lot of jobs. And you've got people, you've got some of these highly educated Democrat voters who they're, they're baristas at Starbucks. They mm-hmm. can't get a job in their professional career. Meanwhile, welders are making $120,000 a year. Yeah. Truck drivers are making $150,000 a year. So this point need not be, I think, like a, a, a flashing red light for Republicans. Mm-hmm. It may actually be that this point is actually sort of a positive thing for Republicans because I think a greater and greater share of the American population is not going to necessarily have a four-year degree. So just just to put the numbers on this before we move to the next point, uh, Sosnick says Biden carried white educate white college-educated voters by 15 points. At the same time, Trump carried white non-educated voters, not college degrees, by 32 points. So you see just the huge spread in there. Yep. Yep. Yep, the, the, the data is undeniable on that point. What's really interesting is, I mean, you need to know the data, but what I think is really interesting is trying to sort of figure out the why, not yeah. the what, but the why. And, and of course, Trump tried to reach out to uh, working people. There was, remember, Ronald Reagan was able to attract some of them with the, what they call the Bubba vote, the blue collar vote, some of those things. Absolutely. No, one thing we know about Trump's electorate is that he brought people in who had not normally been voters. And Republicans were were generally uh, supportive of that because they had not been able to attract 
middle income, lower middle income, high school educated, but not college educated. That had not been one of their demographics. Long term, strategically, it is probably better for the Republican Party to not be perceived as the party of the rich and the fat cats on Wall Street, mm-hmm. which is what the perception used yeah. to be. And and it really has not been the case for some time. Exactly. Most of Wall Street votes Democratic. Exactly. All right, going to number three. National polling is not an accurate predictor of presidential election outcomes. And we've seen this recently, as we've seen that there's a poll numbers out there, and this is what we think is going to be happening. And it turns out that the polls turn out, just, just do not reflect how the election comes out. Now, how much of this, his point is national polling is not right. an accurate indicator. Um how much of this do you think is a reflection of the fact that we we don't elect the president through a national popular vote, but we elect the president through the electoral college? He, he makes the case that that's that's in fact what's yeah, happening. Yeah. He says that you've, you've really only got eight states that are uh, that where, where things are really decided. And so if you go to Texas and you're polling in there, you're going to show a Republican winning. winning. If you go to California, you're going to show a Republican winning. If you oversample California, yeah. you're going to uh, likely pick a Democrat. Well, in think. fact, that's the fourth point. So let's not let, let's let's stay on three here for a second. Right. Some of this, I think, well, yeah, I guess point three and point four are, are related. Mm-hmm. But some of this is the fact that, you know, for the past, 20 years or so, you've had this thing going on called the big sort, mm-hmm. right? Where red states are getting more red and blue states are getting more blue. People are moving to areas where they feel more politically comfortable. We know that people have moved to Texas and California because they were fleeing blue state policies. And so you, you've had this big sort that has happened. And so what that does is that sort of... Um, turbocharges the effect of the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if if every state was purple, then the Electoral College would not be as determinative as it is. But because of this sort of big sort where you have, you know, states where a Democrat has no chance and states where a Republican has no chance, uh, it's, it's almost like there is no point in doing national polling. And there's another aspect here we need to touch on. He doesn't mention it. But but uh, demographers and pollsters have been talking now for, what, a decade, 15 years about the changes because of people moving to cell phones and not having landlines. Right. When you have landline phone numbers, you sort of have a you know where people are. There's a demographic there. You can put calls into there. But very few people have landlines anymore. I'm one who does, yep. but most people don't. And then most people don't answer the phones anyway. Exactly. And one of the ways that you got a non-biased uh, I tried to get a non-biased poll sample was that you just made random calls out there to different areas. Well, some of this is a cultural change, right? right. Because th- there was a time not too long ago was when the phone rang, you dropped what you were doing and, and, you, and answered, you answered the phone. Or the door. Yes. But, but, but you also felt a social obligation to actually talk to the person on the phone. You right. know, we've become much more... Uh, it's not just the technology that's changed, but we've become more cynical. We're mm-hmm. way more likely to say to hang up on people and say, nah, not doing it, not going to take that poll, whatever. Yeah. Or even to, you know, yank the pollster around and give them false answers or whatever, you know. Or not answer the phone. Yeah. So, so it's not just technology that's changed, but there's like a cultural right. change. And as that well. has made it really, really difficult for uh, for pollsters to be able to get a good sample. And so in some cases, they're just way off. I mean, I think uh, in Susan Collins in Maine's, last election, they 
thought her her uh, challenger was winning, Susan Collins won by ten points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Maine's not a big state, but that was a really big yeah. Miss po- there. Polling errors have increased. It, it's becoming a less exact science, not a more exact science. Which is interesting because we're we're a year out from an election, just a little over a year out, and now we're seeing polls all the time, mm-hmm. but they they mean less even as we see more of it. Exactly. And, and by the way, just as an aside, part of why I was talking about the cultural effect of people not answering the phone is that I have been watching Mad Men for the first time. Mm. I didn't see it during its original run. I've been watching it now. And, you know, set in the early 1960s. And mm-hmm. so I'm being reminded that, you know, if you're if the family's sitting around the table having dinner and the phone rings, you stop what you're doing, you get up and you answer the phone. Yes. And it's just been a dramatic cultural change. So number four. There are only a handful of states that determine control of power in the U.S. And those handful of states, he says, are Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Now, our listeners will probably remember with the, the, the five states that really helped Trump in uh, 2016, uh, Arizona and Georgia had been voting Republican for some time, but Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin came in him, which was, would typically go to, to uh, a Democrat, and that gave Trump the electoral votes he needed. He lost those, sta- those uh, states in the 2020 election, but there, besides those, those sort of five states, Arizona, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, he adds in there North Carolina and New Hampshire. They're the two states that we haven't heard much about is Nevada, New Hampshire, and North Carolina. But those are swing states, and he's making the case, and I see more people doing exactly the same thing, that that's where you really have those states will decide who's going to be president. Yeah, and, and so this is this point is so related to the previous point about polling not be, national polling not being accurate. Right. Because he makes the point of saying the only polls that matter are in these swing states. Right. Those are the only polls that matter. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is to see how this has changed over time. Because, you know, what not that long ago, like Ohio was the swing state, right? Mm-hmm. Like whoever won Ohio. And Iowa. Yes, exactly. And now those are not swing states anymore. No. Meanwhile, Wisconsin was considered out of Republican possibility. Like nobody thought a Republican could win Wisconsin. Right. So yeah, it, it just it goes to show that trends change over time. I think the big sort is part of that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but like if you're really if you're trying to be a student of politics, if you're the kind of person who goes regularly regularly to real clear politics and looks at the polls and that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. It's really interesting that the only polls that matter are those eight states. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing. Of those eight states, four of them, Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, and North Carolina, have tended historically to be Republican. Mm -hmm. And four of them, Michigan, Nevada, uh, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, have tended to be Democratic, even though that has changed a little bit over the the last few years. So you've got eight states. Uh, some are some are not that big. Some are are fairly good size, but some of them, have, roughly half of them, have tended to be Republican, and half of them have tended to be Democrat. But that all that's changing now. Yeah, none of those states have massive electoral college numbers. Right. In fact, well, Pennsylvania's got. Well, I guess Pennsylvania. I guess Pennsylvania and Michigan and, to some extent, and Georgia's got. Yeah, but but not massive like a New York, California, right. Texas, Florida. So it, they're like they're like. I guess about four of those states are like second tier as far as the size mm-hmm. goes. And then you've got like, you know, you've got Nevada and New Hampshire, which don't have a ton of electoral college votes. But on the other hand, you know, 
we've all been seeing elections lately that could be decided by very small margins in the Electoral College. Yeah, yeah. The number five, the potency of abortion as a political issue will increase over time. Boy, I know this, this, boy this is a big one. The, I, I know Republicans were hoping it would kind of peak and then and then begin to settle down a little bit, but he thinks that the potency of the abortion issue is going to increase. I think he's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, um, you know, our objection to the Roe decision for 50 years was that this should be left to the states, right? right? And so there's a sense in which for 50 years, the whole conversation about what should be our abortion policy has been suspended. Mm -hmm. So it's like we're at the very beginning now of the discussion of what should be abortion policy. And so, and, and it's been returned to the state. So it shouldn't be a surprise that abortion is suddenly a political issue at the state level. Uh, And I'm fascinated by this because it gives us an opportunity in real time to actually see what we've been talking about in theory actually play out for real. Mm -hmm. Because in theory, we've been saying the state should decide this. It's okay if one state has one set of rules and another state has another set of rules. And now this is actually going to start playing out in real time. And I think Republicans are in big trouble on this Mm -hmm. because... If you actually look at polling on abortion, the consensus of the American people is that the late they become the later in the pregnancy, the more uncomfortable they become. Right. That is where that is the consensus of the American people. So if you think that laws and regulations should reflect the consensus of the people, what that suggests is that even in red states there's not going to be broad popular support for absolute bans on abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think red states, you know, might have a six or eight or 10 week limit, whereas blue states might have no limit no or they limits, might have a yeah. 20 week limit or something like that. But the the immediate knee jerk reaction of Republicans has been, oh, goody, Rose gone. We can now ban abortion. And I'm afraid they're going to find out at the ballot box that they've gotten a little too far out on the limb, or at least they're a little further out than their constituents actually are. And, you know, this is where Nikki Haley has said, you, you're going to have to be pragmatic here. You're going to have to be yeah. realistic. Yeah. Uh, the, New York, uh, Illinois, California are going to have different policies than the mm-hmm. United States and yep. then than, uh, Texas and uh, uh, some other states. So you got to be, and I think that's probably fair. Interestingly, even though the discussion had been all along that this should be returned to the states, as you know, some groups, and I think Susan B. Anthony is one of them, have stepped up and said, no, we need to have national law now, which limits this. And uh, the the sense I'm getting is that if you had something like a 15-week uh, you know, ban after 15 weeks, you could probably get a, a pretty good majority of Americans going along with that. Yeah. Um, maybe some other tweaks in there for that less than 15 weeks, but it's become a real problem. And part of the problem is the the people who are passing the bans, as I understand it, they haven't made it clear what the punishments will be for right. medical providers who are going to provide it. And that's created them, uh, doctors saying, I'm not going to do this because I, I may be at, at, in liability if I do anything. Yeah. And I, in listening to this, I think to myself, you know, we often say it's when the government steps in to do these things, even though you sort of generally support the, the approach, that it is often unclear legislation which, in, which creates unexpected consequences from yes, that. Yes, exactly. So 
this is an area where I, I have to resist the temptation to really nerd out because I, I think that the current abortion debate, particularly on the, in, on the Republican Party, is, is a real test of do you actually believe in self-government or, or do you want to rule over the people you disagree with? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because in a, in a self-governing society, we reach consensus on what rules we all live by. So your personal conviction might be that life begins at conception. That might be your personal conviction. But if that's not the consensus of the American people or the consensus of the people in your state, then that's not, that's not likely to be the policy. And if your attitude is, my goal is to gain enough political power so that I can use the power of government to impose my will on other people who disagree with me, you're, you, you're kind of betraying self-government. You don't really believe in self-government. What you want to do is rule over the people you disagree with. And I think Republicans need to come to terms with this, that there is still, in the pro-life area, there is still going to be the need to win hearts and minds. If you want very, very restrictive policies, and if you try to simply impose them on people through, the, through government power, you're just as guilty as progressives are when they try to impose their agenda on you by using government power. And this takes us to one more point, which is if you go too far on something, then the other side, in this case, Democrats, Mm -hmm. are likely to win elections and they will uh, remove those restrictions. And we've seen that in several places where you wouldn't expect a Democrat to win an election or to win a a, a vote, a, a statewide vote. And they have. Yeah. And so as a result, you have to say, okay, do I want to be pure and try to make go for the strictest thing? But if I do and I get booted out of office and the other side comes in and they go very liberal. The pendulum on these swing, exactly. So, you know, I nerded out a little bit on like a little bit of political philosophy, but I think there's one more point we want to make on this, which is just raw crass politics. Okay. Um, Democrats have become highly skilled at this idea of putting something on the ballot that will drive turnout. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and they 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 learned this trick on marijuana policy. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you put something on the ballot to decriminalize marijuana or legalize marijuana or whatever, you get this giant turnout of young progressive voters who will it'll help you across the board on all the issues, right? They're going they're starting to do this on abortion. They're starting to say, essentially, um, we're going to put an item on the ballot here that's going to protect the right of your daughter to have access to abortion if she makes a mistake or mm-hmm. whatever. And it is, I, I think this is Sosnick's real insight here, is that it's going to have an effect. Yeah. They're, going to put, they're going to strategically put abortion me- measures on the ballot strategically to get Democratic voter turnout, and it is going to work. Mm-hmm. And those Democrats that turn out to vote on the abortion thing are going to vote in all the other races, too. Yeah. So let's go to number six. The South and the West are now the center of political power. And and I, I like that, living in the South, uh, and sort of South and yeah, Southwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but what he says here is that the... Uh, uh, used to the power, the political power used to be in the Northeast, and to some extent the West... Uh, but that is changing now. 
uh, especially as people are <laughs> leaving California, yeah. and the South and the West, generally up to California because so many people are leaving there, yeah. have really become the power brokers in the country. Yeah, Northeast and Midwest used to be. And, and this this has something to do with our previous conversation about swing states mm-hmm. because, you know, what Oh, that part's part of why Ohio was a swing state. It was part of that Midwest, you know, industrial sort of belt. And, of course, the Northeast with the heavy, heavy population centers. But now it's the South and the West. And if you think about it, you know, if you think about some of the states we were talking about that are swing states, right? I mean, Nevada is mm-hmm. one of them, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Georgia, North Carolina. I mean, those are those are southeastern and southwestern states. And he includes a graph here, a, a map of the United States and the states that are gaining more population. And you can just see, especially in the sort of the Texas, uh, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, uh, North Dakota, and Washington State, of course, and Florida. So you, you, you see this sort of sense of where people are moving to, where the population is growing. And that means eventually over time they will get more congress- members of Congress. Yeah, which, which we've seen already which happening. Which we've seen already happening. Yeah, he talks here about the idea of the migration to the Sun Belt, mm-hmm. which has been going on to some degree since the 1970s. Yeah. And, you know, I have a personal angle on this that, that, you know, my family was from New Jersey. And at some point my family moved to the southeast in pursuit, partially at least, in pursuit of better job opportunities. And he makes a point, which I'm, I am aware of myself, is that with the creation of air conditioning and the widespread use, it yeah. made living in Texas and other places a little more bearable because you have the air conditioning. There, there's more economic growth in the Sun Belt because of, because of less unionization, mm-hmm. uh, more economic opportunity. Uh, those states, you have more economic faster GDP growth in some belt states than you have in the old northeastern industrial state, Midwest industrial states and things like that. So there's this Mike, I would argue this migration has been going on since the 70s, but he makes the point that it has really picked up in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And especially during COVID, he says yeah. that the trend accelerated during COVID. So he says that the Sun Belt states now comprise 50% of the U.S. population, but that's expected to increase to 55%. By 2030. Right. That's so why this, this is long-term trends. Yeah. And that by 2040, five of the seven largest states in the country will be from the South or the Southwest. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, that's a huge population trend. And as you point out, those states, therefore, are going to continue to gain more proportional representation in Congress and, and therefore, more proportional representation in the Electoral College. Right. Number seven, the suburbs are the last remaining battleground. And he goes on to say, he says, America's suburbs are now more diverse than cities or rural areas, making them more competitive uh, in elections. Suburban voters determine the outcome of the last two presidential elections, as well as as, at least one branch of Congress in each of the last three elections. And I think there's a... um... And, you know, we've, we've talked about this with respect to Donald Trump because uh, the, the discussion with Donald Trump had been that he, uh, he alienated suburban women. Yeah. I think he was, they would say here, educated suburban women. But su- the suburbs have generally been, you know, you, for a while you had the cities being blue, the big cities being blue, and the suburbs were red. Oh, yeah. But now people in the, in the big blue cities are moving out of the cities because they're a mess. I think this is— And I they're think moving this, into yeah. suburbs. This is a huge change. It used to be that the Republicans owned the suburbs. Mm-hmm. 
And it was because the suburbs are families with children and there's working people, working Working. people. There's always been a trend that people get more conservative when they have children or they go from not caring about politics to caring about politics because they have children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I can't help but think that part of the reason for this is the very good thing that's happened over the past few decades which is that more and more minorities are succeeding economically mm-hmm. and are moving from the inner cities to the suburbs. Right. Uh, as you point out, more and more women are educated. They're not just housewives anymore. And as you point out, um, Donald Trump really alienated women. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of women in the suburbs. Yep. So this is a huge change where the Republicans, you know, they, they owned the suburbs. They owned the rural vote rural vote. They just didn't do well in cities. And I think the Republicans not doing well in cities has intensified. Mm-hmm. I think Republicans owning the rural vote has intensified. And so that's why Soskin says that the only battleground left is the suburbs. Yeah. Number So eight. I suppose from a political standpoint, then, you know, when we were talking about what polls matter, mm-hmm. it may be that the only polls that matter are the polls of suburbanites mm-hmm. in those eight states. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That may be fair. That, those may be the only polls that matter. Okay, number eight. Online small-dollar donors, not the fat cats and bundlers, are the, re- are the real test of the strength of a candidate. And what he, he defines a, a small donor as $200 and less online, and that, that those people are the ones who really determine now the support for a person because you can be you can be a, a Doug Burgum I think it is from the governor of North Dakota you can have a lot of money you can do various things to try to make it look like you have some donors and he played some games to do that but the idea of small donors coming in and a lot of money coming in is is a really a test of your support and you know I think if I'm not mistaken. Barack Obama was the first yeah. one to really implement yeah. this. And they would say, you know, give $1, give $3, give $5, you know, get these small ones. It not only does it bring a little money in, it lets them identify somebody who's going to be supportive. And now you know who that person is and you can encourage them to get out to vote on Election Day, get to the polls and do other things. It creates a real connection between people just getting in a little bit of money. Yeah, this is an Obama campaign innovation. And... What they figured out was it's easier to raise a lot of money over a short amount of time from a million small donors than it is from 150 big donors. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about the small donors is because because by definition, if you're a small donor, you're not maxed out. Right. You could just keep giving and giving and giving. You know, so, you know, the thing about big donors is they say, OK, I'm going to support you. And then they're maxed out because there's legal campaign limits. Right. Uh, but if you can do this small donor thing, uh, you could just keep coming back over and over and over again. But just by building a really, really big list. The other thing that I think is a factor here is that campaign finance reform has weakened the parties. Mm-hmm. It used to be that if you were giving, you were giving to the party. And now people feel that they're giving directly to the person. Right. And so it's a, it's more of a relational kind of thing. And I think people are more willing to say, yeah, I like that guy. I think I'll give him 25 bucks. Then people are saying, yes, I'm a diehard Republican and I'm going to give the party $1,000. Right. And, you know, I Republicans have picked up on this. I get usually several uh, texts a day from some somebody I've never signed up for 
from people saying, I'm Donald Trump, or mm-hmm. I'm this person, or I'm that person, or we're the GOP, yep. uh, we were really fighting for you, Get, you know, donate $3, donate $5. Mm-hmm. And so the Republicans have followed suit, and they're trying to do that well, as and well. Well, if, if you think about it, um, I, I don't want to get ridiculous about this, but why is it that when you're in any store, when you get to the cash register, there's these small, low-dollar, tchotchke kind of things sitting mm-hmm. right there right there by the by the sales counter, by the checkout, you know, Packs of gum. Impulse buys. Or, yes, they're, they're low-cost impulse buys, right? And I think that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about low-dollar impulse political contributions. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, I won't miss five bucks. You know what I mean? I, if, if, if I decide to make a, a $15 campaign contribution to, to Ron DeSantis, I'm not going to miss any meals, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's, it's a small commitment. And so, yeah, if you could just use technology to build a really, really huge list— and you get a 20% return rate, average of $5, that's pretty big. Yeah. Number nine, here's a real important one we've been talking about. There is no longer a true election day in America. You know, as a youngster, there was election day. Yep. And if you, there, there were some options. If you were going to be traveling or something, you, you, could, uh, you could maybe do a mail-in vote or uh, do something uh, ahead of time. But for the most part... Almost all of the states have some kind of way that you can vote early. We do in Texas, usually two weeks, uh, two full weeks. And this has really opened up. So there's no real election day, he says in there. So it's not that you want to wait until the last minute to try to make your case and reach out to people. But on the other side, from a political standpoint, if you're a political activist, you've now got a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, to try to help get uh, get people to the polls early. Yeah. And Republicans had been pushing back against that. Yeah. I don't know why they had. I mean, well, it never because, made sense. Because they're conservatives, and conservatives don't like change, right? <laughs> I, I know people who say, I don't, I'm not about to vote early. I'm going to go on Election Day. But then if you go, get ready to go Election Day and the line's long, it's pouring down rain— you may not want to stand in line that long. We, we, we know from past elections that literally, literally, the weather or a flu epidemic. Or a glitch in the voting. Absolutely. Could affect, could dramatically affect turnout on Election Day. And, and those days are really gone. The other thing that this does, he, he makes a point here. I think he says that there's eight states where voting is now primarily done by mail, mm-hmm. okay, which is really something. Yes. So this, this eliminates... To a large degree, I think this whole idea of the October surprise, mm-hmm. like 10 days before an election, you wait till 10 days before an election to drop that really juicy negative, you know, tidbit that you've been saving up against your opponent. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it may be that more than half the votes have already been cast. It's going to have to be September surprise. It's going to have to be an August or a September surprise. That's right. But it's it that is a change. And Republicans have decided they they were reluctant to do this. Now they have decided to jump in the Republican Party itself yeah. well, to make this a big Republicans, issue. I mean, I, I seriously think that the, the basic conservative instinct is to be resistant to change, mm-hmm. okay? I, I don't like voting by—I don't like widespread voting by mail. I don't like long, extended early voting times. It seems to me that if you know you're not going to be in town on Election Day, uh, you could file a mail ballot— it seems to me that 10 days or two weeks of early voting is more than enough, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But here's the thing. Um, if this is, in fact, the way things are going, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. 
Yeah. If you don't jump you, on board and maximize. You got it. it. It's the way things are going, and you've got to learn how to play with that and actually try to maximize that for yeah. your benefit. And make sure that I think a lot of Republicans are suspicious that all these things are, are really being done in order to make it easier to cheat in elections or mm-hmm. to game elections. Uh, they probably do tend in that direction. So what you got to do at your state is you just got to make sure that um, that your election laws and your election practices are as tight and secure as possible. Yeah. That that there are ways to validate mail-in ballots and early voting and all that kind of stuff, because this is the trend. Number 10, his last one, political reform is gaining strength across the country. And that is certainly the case as we are looking at the group like that group that calls itself no labels they're considering whether or not they want to try to run a third party candidate out there um and so they've been talking to joe manchin other people to see if they could if they're going to need a third party candidate option and of course the uh i think they're i think they're more likely to do it if you have if it looks like you're going to have a trump biden rematch yeah because i think that's Essentially, what they're saying is we don't want these two on the on the ballot. Mm. So let's uh, let's have a third party candidate if it's if it's out there. But the sort of political reform people are getting fed up with an awful lot of things they're seeing out there, and I don't know where the reform will go. But I certainly see a sense of we're tired of the way things are, um, and and we want to see some kind of change. And I'm just not sure where yeah. that change well, goes. Well, he makes he he gives several examples. He talks about, for instance, jungle primaries mm-hmm. that some states have implemented. He talks about some states where they're trying to do, like gerrymandering reform. Yeah, they they, they appoint what's supposed to be a nonpartisan exactly. council committee exactly. to exactly. sort of do the gerrymandering. He talks about ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. I did a uh, I did a Zoom the other evening with a political group, and one of the questions was, "What do you think about ranked choice voting?" And of course, you have major macro things like the national popular vote, which seeks to get an end run around mm-hmm. the electoral college. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think he's right now that. People are experimenting with with different electoral reforms. And again, this cuts against the sort of conservative instinct that we should always do things the way we've been doing them. But I think it's a mistake for conservatives to just sort of be knee-jerk opposed to like any and all political changes or reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are shocked when they are told that we have not always had primaries. Mm-hmm. Primaries was a relatively new. We really only started doing political primaries in the 70s. Uh, Most states did not do political primaries before the 1970s. And in fact, political primaries were an innovation of the progressive left because they wanted the process to be more democratic. They wanted it to be more grassroots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk about the old days when when candidates were chosen in smoke filled rooms and stuff like that. For most of American history, that's how we've chosen our candidates. This idea of going to primaries where the grassroots gets to choose who the nominee is, that's a relatively new innovation. And so the point is, just because that's how we do it now doesn't mean that's how we've always done it, and it doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. And, you know, to your point, the Democrats changed that in order to try to, as you say, to make it more democratic. But Robert Kennedy Jr., who is running against Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday, highlighting this issue and talking about how the Democrats are now changing the structure 
so to make sure that he can, that he Robert Kennedy can't get the uh, they're, they're increasing the power of the superdelegates right. and so forth exactly. who will go with Biden and not the voters out there of the Democratic Party who might give him a bigger I swath think of the vote. I think it's I think it's I think one of the most striking things in politics is the degree to which when it actually comes down to choosing candidates, Democrats act like Republicans and Republicans act like Democrats. Okay. And here's what, here's what I mean. The Democrats have superdelegates. Mm-hmm. The Democrats have made the a de- lot of superdelegates. Yes, they've made the decision that the political insiders get, have more power than the grassroots delegates. Mm-hmm. And the assumption behind that is that the political insiders have better judgment about things like electability than the grassroots does. So the Democratic Party, in their process of choosing a nominee, actually acts more elitist. And the Republican Party, which is supposed to be, you know, the the party of big business and the elites, is the most progressive. We've turned, we've given all the power to the grassroots. The party bosses have no power in the Republican Party. Everything is run from the ground up. The Republican Party is literally more small d democratic than the democratic party is and interestingly the democratic party changed its first primary pulled it away from iowa the iowa caucus in new hampshire to run it in south carolina to help joe biden right. everybody right. knows that right. that's why they're doing that yeah so it's, it's it's interesting to see how they're manipulating this thing to help uh to help the current president who might face some challenges if things were done differently but you know when you talk about reform one of the things that's happened, I mean, Republicans used to be conservative. They are now, at least on the Trump wing, not quite what you'd call conservative. Some of them don't even call themselves conservative. Mm-hmm. Democrats are changing as well. They used to be sort of the blue-collar vote. I'm not sure that's going to be the case anymore as more and more educated. That could end up changing the parties, or I think it's unlikely, but at least possible, that you could get a new party come out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that he is, I think he's absolutely right on all 10 of these things. And it, it's fascinating to me because my understanding is this is the longest we've gone in American history without a shakeup of the political parties. It is, yeah. Uh, you, you have regularly had parties come into existence and go out of existence as they, be, as they become less relevant or they just can't succeed. And it would not be a shock if in our lifetime something like that happens because it's overdue. And as you point out, I mean, Donald Trump himself said, I'm not a conservative. Yeah. I mean, he said, I'm not a conservative. Well, before Trump, if you had said that, you would have disqualified yourself from, from being an elected official in the Republican Party. Everybody right. claimed to be conservative. Everybody did the commercial saying, I'm the leading conservative, yeah. I'm yeah. a conservative. So that just goes to show you that the, the ground is shifting under our feet. To your point, the Democratic Party goes back to Andrew Jackson. And if you want to bend it just a little bit to Thomas Jefferson, yeah. Yeah. Republicans go back to Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Absolutely. <laughs> And their first election was night was 1856. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it has been a long time, and there have been a few times that uh, third parties tried to jump in there, but hasn't worked. Yep, that's right. Well, this has been really fascinating. Um, thank you, Dr. Matthews, for bringing this to our attention and sort of leading us through this. We appreciate you listening and joining us for this episode today of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org where you can sign up to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? 
And how about sharing it with people that you think might find it to be of interest? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.